Well, good morning, EBC. It's good to be back with you. Uh, My name is David Lawrence. I am a child of God, saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and for the glory of God alone. God alone, you see, is worthy of all glory and praise. And that's why we come together like we are this, this week to worship the God who chose to save us by his own good, sovereign pleasure. Salvation, you see, is something that we don't deserve. It will never, ever be able to repay. Today, we're continuing to examine our EBC statement of faith. And now, as a, as a church, I want to make clear that we're not, we're not following a set of statements created by man as we do this. Rather, we, we follow and we submit to the Bible as our authority. This statement of faith is a summary of the Bible's teachings on particular doctrines or truths. That's why we're looking at these things. So as we consider statement 11 that uh, Lana has just read for us, we want to consider what the Bible says about sovereign grace. Now here's a way that we can summarize the statement that Lana just read for us. It was God's eternal purpose to choose some people to be saved by his sovereign goodness alone. It was God's eternal purpose to choose some people to be saved by God's sovereign goodness only. Now let's break this down. We'll do it this way. We'll talk about God's purpose and plan, one. God's choice, number two. Then our responsibility, number three, and finally our response. So as we consider this first point now, it's God's purpose and plan. The statement begins, we believe that it was God, the eternal purpose of God, which he graciously planned before creation. As we look deeply at creation You know, these days, most people in the scientists now consider that there must have been a what they call first cause of creation. As Christians, we call that first cause the the creator, our our eternal God. Looking more deeply at creation, then we see that God was infinitely wise He had a purpose, a plan in creation. Just look at all the things that he's created and you see the amazing design of our creator. His plan includes creating us in his image to bear his glory throughout the earth. So when sin entered into his perfect creation in Adam and Eve's rebellion, it it didn't take God by surprise. He wasn't wasn't like, oh no, what am I going to do now? No, he planned all of this. He planned the punishments that he would proclaim, including in that the promise of salvation that would come through the offspring of Eve. Genesis 3.15 
when he's cursing the, the serpent, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. You see, God had a purpose, a plan in creation. He wasn't surprised at sin and he promised that a savior would come. So then I ask you, is it any wonder that he would then have a purpose and plan in how salvation would come and to whom he would offer such a great salvation? Indeed, he does. Paul speaks of that plan, and we read it earlier in Ephesians. Paul speaks of that plan in Ephesians chapter 1, where he says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with with the pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. He chose us before the creation of the world. He predestined us in love to adoption. Our, our son, Noah, our son Noah has just adopted a little girl. Her name is Charlie. Uh, amazingly, she's half Kurdish. Well, one day I'll get the, the chance to tell you that whole story in detail. But the point here about adoption is that of choice and permanence. I want to think about those two things. Noah and Laney, you see, chose Charlie. Charlie didn't choose them. And, and biblical adoption means, and this is true for, for them, for us, that Charlie is a member of our family forever with equal status as a natural born child. That's what adoption means. And you see in these verses that God's purpose and plan was for a particular people to be adopted into his family through Jesus Christ. I want to encourage you, church, just like Pastor Joe mentioned just a moment ago, I want to encourage you to meditate on these verses in Ephesians 1. They're in your bulletin, so take that home and meditate on them. Learn more about God. I mean, here we see his knowledge before creation. We see a motivation of his love. We see the freeness of of his gift in Jesus Christ. We see his own pleasure and will to do this very thing. And the result of it all is his praise and glory. Consider also what it says about those whom he chooses, how and why they are chosen, being made holy and blameless in his sight, being adopted, and the inheritance that will then come to those who are in his family. And and how even that adoption puts us as believers into a family. We're adopted into a family. Friends, God has a purpose and a plan in salvation. It's not random. It's not by chance. 
And as we sang earlier, we've, we've contributed nothing to it. Nothing in our hands do we bring to this salvation. Ultimately, it's not even about us. It's about Him and His glory. And we get to be a part of that. Now, you, you may ask, do we really have nothing to, to contribute to our own salvation? Really? I mean, clearly we must have responded to the gospel message that says repent and believe. Well, yeah, true enough. Let's look now at the second point as we continue with the statement. The statement says, it was the eternal purpose of God, which he graciously planned before creation to choose some people to be regenerated and saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. This is perfectly consistent with the free agency of man and is a most glorious display of God's sovereign goodness being infinitely free, wise, holy, and unchangeable. And we're going to come back to that phrase about the free agency of man, but let's consider our second point, God's choice. Now, as the EBC Statement of Faith says, the members of this church believe that God had planned to choose some people to be saved. Now, we admit that this is at the same time both a delightful and a distressing doctrine. It's delightful to understand that God chose to save wretched sinners just like us who couldn't save themselves. The more we understand just how bad our situation was before being saved, the more we find delight in God's sovereign choice of us. It's delightful to think that God would be so kind to think of us. I mean, Titus 3, 4, and 5, he says, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. It's delightful to think we've been given such an amazing gift. And that gift coming only by God's sovereign good pleasure. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9 starts out, He saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of His own purpose and grace. Friends, truly, truly, we have been saved by grace alone. Through faith alone, in Christ alone, and that for the glory of God alone, as was reclaimed by the reformers in the 1500s. That great doctrine is so delightful. But this doctrine may also be distressing. And, and, and I get that. You, you may even be offended by this doctrine that God would choose whom he would save. And I, like I said, I totally get that. I felt that once. 
from our human perspective, it's difficult to think that God would choose some people to receive his love and eternal life and others left to face his wrath and eternal death. And let's, let's consider three common objections to this idea of God's sovereign purpose in choosing. One, we're going to look at, is it fair? <laughs> Two, doesn't God want all people to be saved? And three, what about those who, who aren't saved? Does God even care about them? So we're going to look at those three things. First, fairness. Is it fair that God would choose who to save and not make salvation available to all? Well, the scripture actually does tell us that salvation is available to all. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes will have eternal life. It's available to all, but because of our sin nature, no one chooses the salvation that God has offered. Isaiah 53, 6 says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. We all go our own way. In fact, Romans 3, 10 and 11 says, there is no one righteous. No, not one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. Friends, I mean, just if you look into your own heart and life, I mean, if we look at ourselves, we, we see that we have done things that we feel guilty of or ashamed about. We can see it in our own lives. If God is fair, then we should all get what we deserve. And fair, in that case, means we receive eternal punishment for our sin against a holy, eternal creator. You know what's truly not fair? What's really not fair is that the innocent dies for the guilty. 1 Peter 3.18 says that Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. What's not fair is that Christ suffered and died for us. What's not fair is that we, the unrighteous, would benefit from Christ's righteous sacrifice on the cross. I'm glad we get what's not fair. Well, next, does God want, doesn't God want all people to be saved? I mean, 1 Timothy 2.4 seems to say that when it says this is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Well, first, let's consider two problems if these verses mean 
that it's God's will or God's desire that all people, all people who have ever lived, would be saved. I mean, first is that clearly not all people are saved or even have come to a knowledge of the truth, not even remotely. And, and here's the issue. If God desires something but does not have the power to get it, to obtain it, then it means that something is greater than God's will. In that case, he would not truly be almighty. If God desires something but cannot obtain it, then something else is greater than God. Second, second problem, if God desires all be people to be saved, then what do we do about justice? Is there any vindication for the victim? What about those who continue to reject the truth, who continue to reject Jesus? What happens then? Is there justice? Hmm. Let's, let's consider the context uh, both before and after that helps us understand what Paul means here by all people. So we're in Timothy, 2 Timothy. No, actually, we're in 1 Timothy. Yeah, 1 Timothy. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and for those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all good godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is... One God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. Now, in the context before, Paul is encouraging prayers for all people, including kings and those in authority. In the context after, he says that there's one God and one mediator, Jesus Christ, the ransom for all people. So Paul, urging prayer for all people, he does this because God does not limit his salvation to just one kind of people. He wants all kinds of people to be saved. Common people and rulers, Jews and Gentiles, white, brown, black, university graduates and those who are unable to read and write. God desires all people, all kinds of people to be saved. And the way they will be saved is through that mediator that God has provided, Jesus Christ. He is the one ransom for all people. So all people in that case means all kinds of people. We see it even in this church with people from all different backgrounds, all different social and economic places. So what about those whom God does not choose? Does God care at all that some might or some will die in judgment? Well, let's consider another passage that's commonly uh, brought up to contradict God's sovereignty in salvation. 
It's uh, Ezekiel 18. And in, in verse 23, do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord. Rather, am I not rather I am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? If we look down at 30 to 32, you, therefore, Israelites, I will judge each of you according to your own ways, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent. Turn away from all your offenses, then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourself of all the offenses you have committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O people of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. Yeah, it's true. God's not pleased in the death of the wicked. And yet he must judge. He's not pleased in judgment, but that does not keep him from being a just judge of sin. It's kind of like a good parent. A good parent is not pleased that they have to discipline their child. Yet because of something greater, maybe it's their child's safety or their morality or just even getting along with others, that parent must discipline. God must judge sin because of something higher, and that is his glory as the only perfect holy one. Like a good parent calling their child to obedience so they won't re receive discipline, that's what God's calling for here, calling for repentance so that his people won't be judged. For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. Can't, can't tell you how many times I told my kids, obey so I don't have to discipline you. <laughs> Well, okay, we thought about God's sovereign choice. Let's consider our third point, which is our responsibility. Let's go back to that phrase that we skipped uh, earlier. This is perfectly consistent with the free agency of man. Now, first, a definition. Uh, free agency of man means that humans, we, are free in our ability to think and to make choices. I mean, sometimes people call this free will, and it's true. We are free to choose uh, and to live as our hearts desire. I mean, I decided to wear this shirt today. Uh, you decided what you were going to eat this morning. And you can choose to live here or live there or to fix your phone or buy a new one. You, you have the ability to make choices. But see, we have a problem in the choices that we make with our heart's desire. And that is that our hearts are deceitfully wicked. Jeremiah tells us that. The heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? That means that our will, our ability to choose, is not as free as we'd like to think it is. Augustine 
the 4th century African bishop, describes why the free will is not actually free. He, he speaks of four conditions of the will. It, it's free will in con- creation. It's the enslaved will, the redeemed will, and the perfected will. Let's look at each. Free will, first. Adam was created with a will completely free to obey God and to disobey God. His will was completely free. He was what you might think of as morally neutral, truly innocent. Now, with his freedom, Adam chose sin. He chose to disobey God. And in that moment, his heart and history changed forever. From that time, humanity suffered the second thing, the enslaved will. Adam's descendants, that's us, all of us, we still have a will, but we're no longer morally neutral. I mean, David says that even from conception, I was sinful, sinful from birth. Our will has been enslaved to sin. Jesus said, he who sins is a slave to sin. Do you sin? Yes, you're a slave. So yes, we make choices. What I'm wearing, what I'm eating, where I'm going. But we are not free to obey God. The reformers called this total depravity. It means we're corrupted throughout our whole being. Okay, what total depravity does not mean is that we're as bad as we ever possibly could be. You could be worse. Uh, Nor does it mean that we're incapable of doing anything good. Do you do some good things? Sure. Total depravity means that corruption has entered every part of us. Our mind, our emotions, our motivations, our whole being is stained in sin. And so we're condemned according to God's judgment. We choose sin because the core of our being is totally sinful. The Bible describes this center of our being as the heart. Uh, And that, that heart is always pressing our will towards sinful pleasures. It's It's why people enjoy sin. I mean, before being redeemed, I loved sin. (laughs) I'm sure you who believe and have been transformed could say the same. It's why we as believers, even yet, even now, we we still wrestle against sin. John Stott called it the, the fight. The problem, you see, is our hearts, our hearts. Now, we just read there that God said in Ezekiel 18, he said, get a new heart. Problem is, we can't. (laughs) We can't change our own heart. 
But several chapters later, in, in, in Ezekiel 36, God says, okay, you can't change your heart so. This is verse, chapter 36, verses 26 and 27. You can't change your heart so. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, a soft heart. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. You see, God does in us like a spiritual heart surgery. New hearts mean that the will is then set free from its bondage. And that is the third thing, a redeemed will. You see, in, in his death and resurrection, Jesus frees us from the penalty of sin. And he frees our will, now giving us the ability to once again choose obedience to God. Jesus frees our will. John 8.36, he says it. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Church, we don't have a free will to choose God, but once God chooses us and redeems us, our will is free again. Through Christ, we can actually grow in holiness as we choose more and more to walk according to His character. To obey God. And then, when Christ returns to take us to our heavenly home in his kingdom, we will have what Augustine described in the fourth thing, the perfected will. In that, in that, in that instant, in the flash of a, of, of a moment, Paul says, our bodies will be transformed in our own resurrection. And finally, we'll be able to truly and totally and perfectly choose to obey God. Oh, what a day. What a day that will be, friends. So contrary to what people think today, true freedom is not the power to live according to my heart's desire. That's what the world would say true freedom is. But rather, true freedom is to be transformed by Christ. That's where we find freedom. And then in Christ, we can live according to our created purpose. To reflect God's image and glory throughout the world. Okay, so to sum up. We cannot choose to obey God unless he chooses to give us a new heart that will respond to his gospel message. And God's choosing does not undermine a person's responsibility in all of this. Sovereign grace actually enables our human will to think about and to decide to trust Christ. That's how these things work together, friends. Now, when we hear the good news about Jesus, it is a message that we must respond to. So let's consider our 
Fourth point today, our response. So we're coming up to Christmas, right? Let's decide you, you or let's say you decide to give someone uh, that you love a present. You purchase it, you, you wrap it all up nice, and you take it over to them and you, you give it to them. Now, what do they need to do in order to enjoy this good gift that you have given? Well, they have to take it into their hands and they have to open it, right? It's, it's not truly theirs if they don't receive it. If they don't do they, they can't claim it as their own if they don't actually open it up and, and enjoy it. So as a first response to this sovereign goodness and grace of God, our first response is we must receive the gospel message. We must believe what it says about Jesus, about his death, about his resurrection. We can't, we can't enjoy the benefits of all that if we don't receive it and believe it. John, uh, John chapter 1, uh, speaking about all this, uh, speaking about Jesus, he says, He came to that which was his own, Where am I? 11. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name. You hear that? To all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of a, husband, a human decision, nor of a husband's will but born of God. Friend, in order to know and experience God's amazing gift of salvation, we must receive the gospel, believe what it says about God, about ourselves, and about Jesus. We have responsibility. We must act. Now, how so? How must we act? Romans 10.9 says, If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And later in the verse 13, then he says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. God's sovereign purpose, plan, and choosing, it is perfectly consistent with the free agency of man. But the fact that we're incapable of choosing God apart from his grace means that we can't boast about the choice that we make. We can't boast about our salvation. That is utterly excluded. <laughs> we, we can't say... I'm saved, I chose God, I'm smart. No, we're not. <laughs> we wouldn't choose God if he didn't choose us. We wouldn't have the ability to respond to God if he didn't put that heart in us. The statement concludes, or it continues, with the effect of sovereign grace on us. It, God's sovereign grace, utterly excludes boasting. 
promotes humility, love, prayer, praise, trusting God, and active imitation of his free mercy. It is the foundation of Christian assurance. So the second way to respond, God's sovereign grace excludes from us boasting about our salvation. And like I said, indeed, we've done nothing to earn it, and we do nothing to keep it. We're not, as saved people, we're not better than those who haven't been saved. Believer, meditate, meditate on the sovereign grace that has saved you and be humbled. Meditate on that sovereign grace that saved you and be humbled. Friend, we deserve judgment, but but God offers us grace. We deserve hell, but he offers us heaven. We deserve death, but he offers to us new life in Christ. It's regeneration, like, like what Andre mentioned last week. When God's sovereign grace became clear to me, I literally fell to my knees, weeping in repentance, begging for God's mercy. I came to believe this good news that Jesus bore the guilt of my sin and covered the shame of it. And, and, and those, when I did that, those tears of repentance turned to tears of joy. And even now, I know that it's by grace alone that I'm saved. I, and when I sin and, or when someone else helps me to see that I've sinned, it humbles me. Friend, uh, we, we need to be humble as Christ was humble. And if you've not responded to God's grace in Christ before now, then I want to call you to receive this good news. Humble yourself and receive this good news. Jesus' death can make you right with God. That innocent lamb of God was sacrificed for you. He hung on a cross to bear all your pain and sin and shame so that you can be made clean and clear before God. Because death could not hold on to him, the third day he he rose again from the grave, we can be certain that that sacrifice was accepted and that eternal life that is promised is true. So if you've, not, if you've not repented, if you've not given your life to Christ in the way that we're describing, then decide now to turn from your sin, beg for his mercy. Maybe, maybe, maybe God is right now beginning that spiritual heart surgery on you. Is your spirit bearing witness right now that this message is true? Can you feel it perhaps deep inside as if some ancient voice is calling out to you to come? My friend, I I beg you, don't resist that voice. God has given you a free gift of great value. It's called salvation. And you have all you need to receive it. All you need. He's done his part. 
And now he's calling you to do your part. Receive the good news. And you will be saved. Now, if you have received God's sovereign grace, then you know. You know the only thing we have to boast in is what Romans 5.2 says, the hope of the glory of God that we have received in Christ. That's what we get to boast in now. Okay, so God's sovereign grace has excluded boasting, but it also promotes a response of love and praise to God. In his grace, you see, God has given us everything we need to believe. What more can we do now but love him? to love him. He's been so kind to us to save us. It's like the he is the perfect bridegroom. Jesus wooing his bride, wooing the church with his love. Mm. In love, he is perfectly providing for, protecting, and promoting his people the church. Do you, do, you, do you think about that, believer? Think, believer, of all that Christ has done for you and be moved in your heart, in your whole being, to love him. Pour out your affections to him. Serve with your life. Submit yourself to him. Love him truly and totally with all your heart with all your mind, with all your strength. Actually, the, the more you understand God's sovereign grace in all this, the more it will overflow from you in praise and prayer and trusting God. That's what we see in Paul as he comes to the, the end of, of Romans 9 through 11. He's just, Romans 9 through 11 is this, this Paul's greatest teaching on this subject of sovereign grace. And at the end, he, he erupts like a volcano in praise as he gets to uh, Romans 11, 33 to 36. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them for from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Friend, God's sovereign grace, it humbles us. It, it teaches us to love God. It also moves us to imitate his love and free mercy towards others. I mean, how can you think badly of another adopted child of God in your family, someone who's also been redeemed as we have by the blood of Christ freely and unmerited? How can we, how can we do that? First John says we love because he first loved us. Whoever claims 
to love God yet hates his brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. Friends, this this family, this family of God that, that he has brought us into, it's not like other families. I don't know how your family was. Maybe, maybe you and your siblings fought a lot. Maybe you didn't get along. Maybe you don't get along with your blood siblings or your parents. That's not this family. In this family, you see, none of us belongs. We don't belong in this family. We've been adopted by God's sovereign grace. It wasn't my choice or that other person's choice to be included in this family. That was God's choice. And who am I to speak against what God has decided? Oh, friend, we cannot be angry at our brother and sister in Christ forever. When someone sins against you, and believe me, they will. When someone sins against you or you're offended by something, forgive as you have been forgiven. Maybe maybe you feel like they don't deserve mercy. Or remember, neither do you. You don't deserve it. Jesus laid down his life while we were still sinners. And he's calling us to do the same for our brother and sister. Believer, freely you've received mercy. Now in Christ, you are enabled. You've been given a new heart. You, your will has been freed. You are enabled to imitate the giving of of mercy freely, even to those who have sinned against you. Salvation comes by God's sovereign grace and nothing else. So praise God. Because by this sovereign grace, he changes our hearts. And if he didn't, (laughs) if God didn't, choose us and change our hearts, we'd surely find a way to lose our salvation. Well, for this reason, the statement ends that God's sovereign grace is the foundation for Christian assurance. But that's a statement for another day. And we're going to look at that later. Friends, I want you to be amazed that God would save us by his sovereign grace only that it was his purpose and plan from before creation and although we are the great beneficiaries of salvation it's ultimately for his glory that we are saved truly we are saved by grace alone through faith alone in christ alone and because of this we can be sure that he will save us to the very end. Let's worship him now.
Join me in prayer of praise. And then we'll sing of the wonders of God's wisdom and grace in the words of that Romans doxology that we just read. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we do praise you now as we meditate on, think about the sovereign grace that is ours in Christ. Lord, as we think that we didn't bring anything to salvation and yet you saved us by your own goodness and pleasure. Lord, we praise you that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly and we were included. Lord, we praise you that you have changed our hearts. You have freed our will so that now we can choose to obey you. And as we do that, more and more, we grow in Christ's character and holiness. Oh, we praise you, Lord, that one day we will be completely transformed in every part of our being so that we may perfectly choose to obey you. You will take us home to be with you forever. Lord, we do pray for those who would be here who don't know this salvation. I pray that they would consider not only what you have done, but what they must do now to receive you and to believe in your name. For it is in that name that we pray. Amen.